0: lead singer of the rock band U2, a gentleman named Bono, in an interview with a French journalist, talked about things of religion and faith and church. In that context, Bono said this, Religion can be the enemy of God. It's often what happens when God, like Elvis, has left the building. A list of instructions where There was once conviction, dogma where once people just did it, a congregation led by a man where once they were led by the Holy Spirit, discipline replacing discipleship. Those are strong words, rather harsh words. You noticed how it began, religion can be the enemy of God. And I want to say, wait, wait a minute, Bono, you sure about that? But then he softens it just a bit by saying, it's often what happens when God, like Elvis, has left the building. In other words, that's not the original purpose, but when God isn't central, then it can happen. And then he goes on to detail what then transpires, becomes dogma more than true faith, etc., So I want to ask, does Bono have a point? Is that a fair assessment, that searing critique? I wonder what insiders would say to that assessment. I suspect there's a temptation on the part of those inside a church to say, Bono, you go sing your rock music, leave the church to us. I suspect that outsiders, if we ask them, might say, go Bono, you're right on. So what about us? What would we say? critique. Now, I would encourage you to hold your answer until you consider today's passage. Because in this series, Insiders and Outsiders, Christian Hospitality in a Polarized World, we today helicopter in and land on Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 is a very well-known Old Testament passage. When you turn to it, you may find that your Bible, just like mine, gives it a heading, and that heading is true fasting. Now, just by reading that heading, we immediately know that we're dealing with something religious because fasting is that ancient practice in which people try to to move away from their physical needs and dependencies in order to be able to focus more clearly on the things that God truly and deeply desires. So we realize he's dealing with fasting here. But just a thumbnail sketch of the passage points out that it's not all easy sledding. In fact, a a brief sketch of the passage, a perusal of the words, may make you think that Bono has a point. It will start out with a command to cry out, to preach passionately and loudly so that everybody hears to a people who at least initially appear to be religiously devoted They seem committed to the task of worshiping God and living God's life in the world. But then when you're partway into it, suddenly it changes. And now suddenly it's like the people of Israel are placed on the witness stand and God is coming at them like an aggressive prosecuting attorney, staccato questions to which they are backpedaling to, wondering how do we answer this? And then later in the passage, we'll read it a bit later, It comes back around to saying, this is what will happen if you have a true fast. So with that background, with Bono's words still echoing, let's read Isaiah. Isaiah 58, beginning in verse 1. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. So far, it seems pretty good. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? So far, so good. Yet, on the day of your fasting... You do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer you will cry for help and he will say here am I wow started pretty good people carrying out their religious practices their acts of devotion of piety even saying where is God why doesn't he come near why isn't God paying attention to us when we do fast but then it starts those piercing, penetrating, probing, prying queries that seem to have no answer. It's almost as though God, through Isaiah, backs them into a corner. says, you think this is what I'm looking for? You think this is what I want? Do you think I just want people inside of here doing acts of devotion and piety and turning a blind eye to the human need around them? God is saying, I want to see you connect your knees to their needs, your prayers to their hunger. That robe of righteousness which covers you, let it be a robe of protection and warmth that covers them. I want to see a connection between the insider and the outsider. This is a very religious group of people. So what is it? What is it that has gone wrong? Old Testament scholar Paul Hansen answers the question well by saying this. The problem is not that the people are unreligious. That would be easy to condemn. No, they are hyper-correct in their religious observances and delighted to exhibit their piety. But in their very exercise of religion, they miss the essential point, God's order of compassionate justice. starts to kind of sound like Bono doesn't it so if you've been watching or reading the news this week particularly the religious news you no doubt have seen what's been happening back in Kentucky so eight ten days ago something like that apparently at a chapel service a call was extended and a hundred students and maybe others responded and came down to the altar and knelt in worship and surrender and repentance. But something happened in that moment where the Spirit moved not only among those students, but moved out among others. And pretty soon it had broken out throughout the auditorium. People worshiping and praying and repenting and confessing and sharing together. It went on for an hour and then two and then ten and then 24 and a day, two, five, six days, still going? Captured worldwide attention. What's going on at Asbury University? And then across the street at Asbury Semita- uh, Seminary, a, a New Testament scholar I've long appreciated, Craig Keener, who's devoted much of his study to the book of Acts, is down in his basement Working, writing, doing scholarship, his wife comes down and essentially says to him, what are you writing about revival down here for? It's happening right over there. And so he came up out of his basement, he went over and began to watch and assess what was happening. He, he wrote something that he posted. I want to read you just a piece of it. So in assessing what was going on there, he writes a bit about the book of Acts. What happened in the book of Acts is Keener's question When the Spirit fell. These are Keener's words. What we find in the book of Acts are outpourings of the Spirit. In Acts 2, Peter describes their new experience of the Spirit as prophetic empowerment to speak for God. In Acts 4, God fills petitioners with His Spirit for boldness to continue speaking for Him. Other collective experiences appear in Acts 10, 13, and 19. One characteristic Luke reports in connection with the first two outpourings is concern for the needy. This observation suggests that these outpourings involve not simply an initial emotional experience, though some did, but a deep, long-range impact in how Jesus' followers treated one another related to what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. Now, what caught my attention in that statement was what he said when he said, One characteristic Luke reports in connection with the first two outpourings, is concern for the needy. So what Keener is saying is when the Spirit fell in that fashion in acts, when the religious experience that the members of the early church had was deep and authentic and real, it wasn't just something that affected the insiders. It drove them to pay attention to those who might be outside of their community because they were in need and they strove to address those needs. Isaiah might say, Whatever label you put on it, it's not an authentic spiritual religious experience if it doesn't reach the outsiders as well as the insiders through meeting their needs. I read a little piece this week about a show on, I believe it was, History Channel. Not sure I know much about it, but think I have the general drift. It's called Pawn Stars. It's apparently out of Las Vegas, a pawn shop, where they follow all the different experiences of people coming in and trying to sell things. Well, it just so happened in this episode that a gentleman came in carefully cradling a violin that upon inspection, once they looked at it, clearly in the inner part of it had the name Stradivarius. It's that kind of experience that every person who scours garage sales, every person that climbs and coughs through dusty attics, hopes to find some treasure that will make them wealthy. So here he brought it, laid it on the counter, Stradivarius. He said, let's get an expert. They brought in the expert. The expert carefully assessed the violin. Whatever tests needed to be applied, I suppose, the expert must have applied them until finally he had an answer. He said, so let me tell you what this is. This violin is worth five to $600. <laughs> what? It says Stradivarius. The expert's statement is what caught my eye. He said, whatever it might be labeled, this is what it is. It's not a Stradivarius. Suppose you might have written that on Isaiah 58. Whatever label you might slap on the fast or on the acts of religious piety and devotion, whatever label you want to apply to it, the truth is, if it's not driving us out of our safe enclaves into human need. It's not something that God is calling us to. It's sobering, isn't it? This passage that I was looking forward to studying left me, yeah, concerned. Doing my own personal inventory about religion inside and religion outside but what if what if what if God's people then and now participated in the true fast what would happen back to Isaiah 58 halfway through verse 9 if you do away with the yoke of oppression With the pointing finger in malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry, and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. As you read through that passage, you see all kinds of realities that any one of us would love to have be true of ourselves or be true of our community. There's newness, there's freshness, there's light, there's restoration, there's reparation. It's a beautiful reality. But notice something key. What is being described here is a people who says we will treat the outsider like the insider. We will address the outsider's needs with just as much interest as we address our own needs. And then what Isaiah describes is that the transformation that takes place, it may take place with the outsider. He's describing the transformation that takes place here. If that's the way you live your life, He's saying it will transform your community. It will bring it to life. It will change the quality, the texture of who you are. I've seen that happen. I've watched it up close. I return to his story today for a bit of a different perspective on it. He was a fairly young emergency physician, very materialistic, working very hard, big goals. Because he was making money and wanted to travel and wanted to do things like buy a fine apartment in London, he would take on extra shifts, maybe 80, 90 hours a week, even sleeping at the hospital. He was going places. He was in London, a little bit of extra time, needed some CEUs, and noticed that a place in London was offering CEUs, the the School of Tropical Medicine. I'll do that. So he went. And he was exposed to something there that was transformational in his life. It lit a fire in Larry's heart, the late Larry Thomas lit a fire in his heart. He was exposed to physicians and others whose eyes had turned southward into the majority world in the continent of Africa and were doing amazing things to transform what was happening in the lives of poor people without health care who couldn't help themselves in the context in which they found themselves. And that lit something in Larry. While he was in London on one of those occasions, a friend invited him to go to All Souls Church where he listened to the preaching of Richard Buse, the rector. Richard Buse, who's preached here on a couple of occasions. And Richard, on that day, Larry was there, extended an invitation, a call. It was a very simple call, no arm twisting. He just said, it may be that you you have committed yourself to Jesus, but that when you did so, you signed your name in pencil. Today, I'd like to ask you if you would sign it in pen. And so that's what Larry did. Changed him. We're talking about Isaiah 58, religious piety. Larry was very religious. Larry went to two, three, four church services in a weekend. He would call me up and he would say, oh, Randy, this is an amazing sermon. Come go to church with me. Come, come go to church. And I'm thinking, Larry, I, I, I'm trying to get out of church. I live in church. What do you mean go back to church more? Come and go with me. If there was a good sermon, a good exposition, if there was a need, he wanted to be there and participate in it. And he gave himself. He, he, he sold himself, in a sense, to the people of Ethiopia. Larry never married. My wife used Used to say to him, Larry, I think you're married to the women of Ethiopia. Say, well, yeah, I suppose that's true because he did so many things to improve, to help improve their lives. Women married at such a young age, giving birth at such a young age that their bodies had not yet fully developed and and had excruciatingly difficult times in deliveries and would have tears that required fistula repair surgery. And and Larry said, we have to do something for them. These women that can no longer contain their urine or their feces, who smell awful, who are banished, nobody wants anything to do with them. We have to do something. So he helped fund. Fistula repair surgeries, clean water projects, pads for young women. And then there was podo. Podoconiosis, I'd never heard of it before, but I sure heard of it from Larry. Podo, a a disease that somehow in the silica from the soil gets into the body's membranes. It's, It's incurable, but entirely preventable by doing one thing, just one thing. Wearing shoes. So, for a period of time, that's what we heard about from Larry. Shoes, shoes, shoes. In fact, I want you to see something. You'll see Larry in this. I want you to see something about his work with Poto. Watch this video.
1: is a horribly disfiguring disease of the lower extremities. It's typically in areas of very high elevation, high precipitation, and extreme poverty. The lady that's here with me right now, her name is desi and desi for many years worked in the fields, and the soil has a fiber which penetrates the skin. It travels up the lymphatics eventually causes uh, inflammation and scarring, and uh, ultimately the swelling that you see right here. In the past, this disease was known as mossy foot. And you can see these little mossy-type lesions on the sides of her feet. Sadly, she had a very advanced case. Ultimately, she actually had to have this leg amputated. So the goal is to keep the feet clean, to put shoes on their feet, try to prevent secondary infections, and ultimately try to prevent amputations. за
0: but it wasn't just POTO. Larry would listen for what the current challenges were and try to step into them. Late in his life, his passion became restoring sight to people with cataracts through cataract surgery. He was deeply committed to that project. He partnered with others to help make it happen. I can remember him telling me, I've shared this with some of you. He said, my goal is to restore sight to 20,000 people by 2020. It was a goal they not only reached but surpassed. And Larry would say to me, Randy, we've restored sight to enough people in Ethiopia to fill your sanctuary ten times over. I want you to see what that was like for Larry. One more video. I was
1: with a friend not long ago, and I was telling him about our cataract surgery in Ethiopia. And he... um, he said, you know, he says, I just had cataract surgery done. And I, I thought, wait, well, he's kind of young for cataract surgery. He said, I just had cataract surgery done on my dog, on my dog. And I said to him, I said, you're kidding. I said, I'd be just curious. Could I just say, how much did it cost to have cataract surgery done on your dog? He told me it was a little over $9,000 for his dog. I said, that's, if I tell somebody that, I don't think they're going to believe it. And so a couple of days later, he called me and he said, you know, if you'd like a photocopy of the invoice for that surgery, I can give it to you. So I actually have it. If somebody wants to challenge me, I can can prove it. Over $9,000 for cataract surgery on a dog here in the United States. We, on the other hand, can do cataract surgery on a person in Ethiopia for $50. (laughs) It's a tremendous social investment.
0: Friends, what you just saw, that's Isaiah 58. Deeply religious person with a passion to say it won't stay in these walls. We will treat the outsiders like insiders. It could be that God is lighting and igniting a fire in someone's heart here today. It may be simply to move out of your own home into your neighborhood, move out of Loma Linda into San Bernardino. It may be to go on a mission trip or for somebody, it may be to ignite a fire in your heart that will not be extinguished till the day you die. It will not only change their life, it will change yours. That's what Isaiah 58 says. It will transform the community so that instead of being a, Well to do emergency physician with a London apartment became a person who could actually say, I've had the wonderful privilege of changing tens of thousands of lives. Isaiah 58. When you leave the sanctuary, you will walk by the Good Samaritan statue, it's at the center of the Loma Linda campus. The story that Jesus told, the supreme irony of which was that two religious people coming from worship in Jerusalem on their way to Jericho, fresh from having participated in the acts of religious piety, ignored human need, wanted nothing to do with it. No wonder God places them on the witness stand and like a prosecuting attorney, asks those piercing, penetrating, probing, prying questions. Do you think this is what I want? I'm not just wanting you to to, to just stop eating. That's a diet. What I'm wanting you to do is to take what you have and to share with someone else. I wonder if that couldn't be called Christian hospitality. Hospitality. What if this church took that seriously and treated the outsiders like insiders? Gracious God, we're profoundly moved at the fact that you treated us that way. When we were outsiders, you gave us the best heaven had. Lord, somehow move in our hearts, in our souls, in our community, in our church. Move in the heart of someone today who can feel you lighting a fire within them that we might truly respond with a true fast that changes the world and then serendipitously changes us. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said